Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the First Australians on whose lands we're producing this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I'm Alessandra Pronotto, your familiar stranger for today. I was the 2019 Secretary of the Australian Network of Student Anthropologists, or ANSA for short, and last year we partnered with the Familiar Strange to record this roundtable discussion at last year's Australian Anthropological Society conference. The roundtable featured several amazing anthropologists working in applied fields. Marcus Barber, Sophie Chow, Jane Kernow, Derek Elias, Bronwyn Hall and Leslie Pine. Throughout the discussion, our president Hannah Yachtenberg asked questions about how they use anthropological methods and concepts in their current work, their engagement with academia, and how they got to where they are today. It was a really interesting discussion, so we hope you enjoy. Here it is, the ANSWER Roundtable discussion on applied anthropology from last year's AAS conference. for inviting me on this panel. It's really wonderful to be here. Um, I should say that I received my PhD in June of this year, so I feel like I should be on that side of the room rather than on this side. <laughs> um, but I'm really glad to get a chance to share a little bit about how I got to where I am, which is um, a postdoctoral research position um, at the University of Sydney. Um, so one of the things that um, wasn't in the description that I had prior experience working in an indigenous rights organization in Indonesia for four years before I did my PhD research. And that's really what's driven me to continue um, using an applied method uh, in my research and in the other activities that I continue to do in Indonesia, particularly in terms of land rights advocacy uh, and participatory mapping and human rights training for the communities um, that I was privileged enough to work with and whose struggle I try to continue to sustain from, Ind from Australia um, and also in my um, field work in Indonesia. Uh, so a typical work day, hmm. I think a typical work week might be a better way to think about it just because the days can be, I try to allocate different aspects of the work to different days of the week. Um, but I'd say I'm doing a postdoctoral research project now. It's really interdisciplinary. So a lot of my day involves engaging with people at the Charles Perkins Center, which is a hard science sort of driven institute, and trying to forge interdisciplinary conversations uh, and dialogue with nutritional scientists, epidemiologists, towards rethinking food insecurity, um, malnutrition-related diseases, um, through a social-cultural lens as much as a biophysical scientific lens. And that's been a really refreshing and challenging exercise of translation work, trying to make the tools that we have as anthropologists relevant to answer questions that they are also struggling with. Um, I think it's a really healthy exercise to push yourself to talk beyond your discipline. Um, about half of my week is then spent um, doing much more applied work, so liaising with indigenous organizations, activists in West Papua, where I did my field work, as well as in Jakarta, um, to try to help disseminate um, the reports, um, the policymaking um, advice that they're giving into English to disseminate to international audience. 
Um, when I go back to the field, the most applied aspect of my work is participatory mapping. So providing trainings uh, to communities, uh, bringing equipment and trying to find a way to in some ways adapt these technologies to the particular ways that they understand the value of the landscape, the value of land, and then to deploy these maps in the context of negotiations with corporations, with the government, uh, and trying to work through these different cultural, economic, political understandings of why the landscape makes sense. So I try to suppose, break down my work half-half between research-driven writing, reading, um, and then the more applied side of human rights advocacy um, and trainings on the ground. Hi everyone, I'm Leslie Pine. Um, thank you for the introduction. You said Root Island so much better than I have ever, so <laughs> thank you for that. Um, I guess a little bit about me. For the past seven or so years, I've worked in a variety of community development and anthropology roles, uh, mostly in the Northern Territory, but also in the South Pacific. Um, and if we rewind to 2011, um, I was doing my undergraduate thesis in Samoa, so doing some applied um, anthropology uh, research and looking at um, how print journalists in Samoa navigate um, their sort of cultural responsibilities and still manage to uphold, you know, sort of Western um, standards of, of, um, of journalism, um, you know, ethics, transparency, accountability, that sort of thing. So I finished that up, um, had an anthropology degree, but in the US there's actually not much you can do with, with such a degree. Um, and I decided I didn't want to launch into a PhD straight away. So came to Australia following a guy, um, <laughs> as you do, and um, ended up uh, moving out to Lajumanu, um, a Walpuri community in the Northern Territory. Um, I applied for a job working in a community development, youth development organization. Um, and that was really eye-opening. I was a girl from the Bronx. Um, I had just learned how to drive. Um, basically, I had, I had my work induction and I was um, given the keys to the troopie and said, all right, so you're going to drive 900 kilometers and your destination will be on your left. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's a somewhat chaotic introduction to community development and working alongside Indigenous Australians, but I think it, it was everything around the job that was really interesting and being embedded in this kinship structure. Um, you know, and, and the job itself was far from glamorous, but I spent a few years, you know, working um, alongside um, community members in a variety of community development um, projects. And then, you know, sort of um, built up a bit of street cred after that. I think when you do a little bit of time in the desert, um, you're a bit more employable. So I was able to build on that and then um, launched into an anthropology job with the Anindaliakwa Land Council. So, and I, I had that job for three and a half years. So a, a typical day um, in that position would um, be responding to um, some sort of request from um, you know, perhaps a development proposal or um, a request from the mining company to do some sort of uh, activity on Aboriginal land. So I would go and identify the, the landowning groups and conduct consultations and do a lot of um, work around sacred site consultations. And yeah, again, just working very closely with the landholding groups and mapping family histories was a big part of the, the job as well. So, um, you know, land council work is, is also, you know, quite challenging, but it is a way that you, know, way that you can really get to know the community and, and work in a lot of different areas within community development and anthropology. 
Yeah. Hi, yeah, my name is Marcus. Um, in terms of origins, it's probably useful to know that, that I was a marine biologist before I was an anthropologist. So the CSIRO is partly a comfortable home for me because I came partly out of the natural sciences um, many years ago and basically wanted to do a PhD on people in the sea and there just happened to be uh, an applied linkage, ARC linkage scholarship going in a remote Aboriginal context that was attempting to push the law of the sea. So I kind of came, became an anthropologist by accident. I was interested in a topic and anthropology, an anthropology department provided me with a vehicle for um, investigating that topic and that was in an applied context. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend starting a discipline that, in a PhD level that you haven't studied as an undergrad. It's kind of stressful, but um, ultimately, yeah, it did yield. And that combination, so in a sense, one of, the, one of the things, we'll get to the advice section later, but I can talk a little bit about coming from somewhere else and then trying to work within the, the administrative and the intellectual structure that you're given. Um, a typical day for me is, and it's probably better again, typical week is easier. Actually, this week's not a bad example. So I flew here this morning. Um, I'm talking to you now. This afternoon, I will be talking to an ANU lawyer about a project that we're doing advising the Indigenous Reference Group for Northern Development on Water Rights. So in other words, trying to give the Indigenous um, advisors to government better understanding of what their legal options are. Tomorrow, I'll be at the Anthropology Conference. Um, and Wednesday, I'll be trying and doing a whole bunch of um, reporting for the government projects that we work on. So the funding for the work I do comes from the Environment Department, from the Department of Agriculture, and also from the Department National Indigenous Affairs Agency. On Thursday, I'll be interviewing the people for a postdoctoral position that's jointly between CSIRO and ANU. And then on Friday, I'll be in Cairns um, holding a workshop, actually not Cairns, out of Cairns, holding a workshop with Indigenous traditional owners trying to work out how to represent their enterprise and economic development interests in a document that they can give to external investors. So this week is actually not a bad example of how the kinds of spread of things, and I'm a team leader, so I'll also be pushing buttons on boring admin HRE type things in the meantime. <laughs> but that spread's actually probably a pretty good example of the kind of week that might exist. There's some flying, there's some talking, there's some um, negotiating with external interest, and then there's some managing some internal admin type things. That was a nice summary, Mark. That's pretty much uh, a... <laughs> thanks. Uh, so, uh, Jane Curnow, um, I might just start with a little introduction to the agency I work for that because that will contextualise why I'm probably going to talk about what I do in a typical month rather than a week. So, I'm at the Australian Centre for International Agriculture Research, which is the specialist agency within the foreign affairs portfolio. So, we invest Australian taxpayers' money in agricultural research for development to try and reduce poverty in partner countries for Australia. So about 28 countries at any one time, but we have 10 country offices, so our focus, not surprisingly, uh, is in the Asia-Pacific region. So I, I mention that because we're not DFAT, um, but we are uh, spending, um, everyone who has a job in here, we're spending your money, um, hopefully in wise and wonderful ways to try and, and, and reduce poverty. So what that means is in my role, I connect a lot with scientists looking to develop uh, project proposals and then usher them through our processes 
to enact them on, on, on the ground. They're always transdisciplinary, so very much like um, I think everyone else here does as well, particularly Sophie, I think the way you articulated that about, I spend a lot of time building bridges to biophysical scientists and explaining the utility of social science, not just anthropology, but, but everything from the more qualitative sciences like anthropology right through to economics and how that can deliver and enhance the work that they do. And that's a really challenging hard sell a lot of the time and I really, really enjoy it. Um, because our licence to operate in partner countries is based on us being part of the Australian government, we engage quite a lot in science diplomacy, so working with the governments of our partner countries and, and the research institutions. We put a lot of emphasis on capacity building as well, so a lot of it is reaching out to early and mid-career researchers and then working more with the senior researchers on the projects that, that we are funding in, in the partner countries. My cycle is monthly, and I say that not because I'm a woman, but because we have this wonderful thing called in-house review every month. So our portfolio is about $200 million every year, and each and every project that goes through ACR is reviewed by all of the scientists there. So it's myself and about 15 others at the moment. So once a month, we all have to be in Canberra. We're on the road an awful lot. Uh, but once a month we have to be in Canberra and we have to have read all of the papers and we engage in the most intellectually stimulating work I've had in my entire career where I get to sit there and put my five cents worth forward on projects and listen to every other person in the room and their take on it. So everyone from a geneticist through to fisheries experts and, and foresters and horticulturists and livestock people, their take on, on the project and my job is to represent the board suite of social sciences and say what's missing and, and what we can get out of it and critique it. We have an exemption from Commonwealth procurement rules, which means that our, um, uh, our processes are all around the, the knowledge of the scientists around the table. So we all take it very seriously and it really is the best part of my job. It's extremely challenging when I'm putting social science projects up because of course I'm trying to sell something that nobody else has any idea of and it doesn't make a lot of sense ontologically or epistemologically. So that I really enjoy as well, working with my colleagues trying to make uh, sense of that. Increasingly, I'm doing a little bit of work now talking um, like we are today, which I'm really, really enjoying. And I've had a one section of my work, the last bit I'll mention here, because it will probably come up a little more later, is work around gender equity and, and women's empowerment. Um, there was an opportunity at ACR to do a lot of work in that space, so that takes up uh, a lot of my back. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Derek. Um, at the risk of uh, lulling you all into sleep, I won't talk to you about my daily job. Uh, what I do all day is suffice to say that I work uh, at the Department of Home Affairs now. My role is security related and I'm not authorised to speak about it. Uh, what I will say though is, and I'll pick up on the last year of my uh, work at, uh, at the United Nations where I worked for 15 odd years, is that um, I morphed into the, an old looking man in a suit doing lots of bureaucratic things and that's who I am here today. <laughs> but I wasn't always like that. <laughs> To my mother's pleasure. <laughs> this week. Um, I started out uh, my journey as an anthropologist at the Central Land Council, where I worked for 10 years, uh, mainly in Yundamu and Lajamanu, mapping sacred sites, dealing with resource extraction issues. That's where I um, got my scholarship and did my PhD at ANU, which I finished a very long time ago. Uh, now it seems. Uh, then I went to work 
uh, at the UN and my job was very anthropological. I was working there on a program on local and indigenous knowledge systems, um, mainly to do with the CBD Article 8J and Section 23 related to the production of uh, indigenous knowledge and how that was being extinguished by scientific uh, educational systems which privileged a westernized worldview about nature, um, taxonomy, all kinds of different things. So we did some wonderful projects when I was at UNESCO in Paris. Um, the most notable was um, one on Pacific navigation, which is the canoe is the people. And I think the most satisfying thing about that project was that um, we looked at all of these different kinds of learning um, systems uh, throughout the Pacific and how we could embed that into um, science, history and cultural curriculum. Uh, to make the, the learnings of students much more relevant to their practical lives, their history, their, their cultural worldview, uh, which is very difficult to do in very small countries which don't have the, the resources to do, undertake huge curriculum change projects. So when I started at the UN, that's what I did 99% of the time and very little on administration or managing other people. Uh, my life now is completely reverse and I would do about 1% of what I would really like to do, and most of the rest is managing the complexities of human beings, which is very anthropological, um, but probably not the most stimulating thing that you'll hear this afternoon. Um, hi again. Um, yeah, my name's Bron Hall. I um, am currently working at the old Adelaide Jail in Adelaide. Um, I recently finished my PhD and I got that job towards the end of doing my dissertation as part of an APR internship program. Um, so there was a position advertised for three months to go into the jail to conduct some oral history research. Um, so the jail actually closed in the year 1988 and um, after that time also it became a museum. Um, and they decided that they would like to employ someone to come in and capture the stories of ex-guards and ex-prisoners, um, kind of with the idea that the walls might be able to talk and they could use it for tourist experience at the jail. Um, when I got to work at the jail, it transpired um, that actually the government became really nervous about this project being undertaken. Um, they were really concerned about litigation if we were interviewing ex-prisoners and they were disclosing things that were sensitive or uncomfortable. Um, I tried to reassure them that I was a competent interviewer and it would be okay. <laughs> um, but it was actually sort of my fault because in the interview they asked if I could foresee any ethical implications for the project and I rattled off a gigantic <laughs> list and then I could see the penny dropping around the panel and they all panicked and um, so the project didn't turn out, but actually what happened when I arrived on site at the jail, they showed me into a gigantic big room full of archives and artifacts and papers and things that were in a gigantic big mess and they were also looking then for someone to help kind of collate the archives. Um, and the first thing I pulled out of a drawer was a folder that said oral history project. And it turns out the year the jail closed, I actually did conduct an oral history project and interviewed um, prisoners and, and staff time. Um, so I was able to kind of thematically analyse that, um, those interviews, and um, the job then kind of morphed into also doing special exhibitions. Um, I created the education program for the jail, so we mapped it to the South Australian curriculum, um, so now there's school tours happening there. So that particular site is not, um, it's a very underdeveloped 
site actually compared to other jails in Australia, like Melbourne Jail, that's um, really developed. And so part of my role there really has been trying to um, encourage people to really take the history and the stories of the place really seriously and to kind of um, almost upsell the skills of an that an anthropologist can bring to the place. Um, so at the moment, I don't really have a job there because the government's just had quite a large restructure. Um, and I'm in the process of really trying to encourage the state government in South Australia to create a position. Um, we're calling it a heritage anthropologist position. Um, and so that that role then would really act as a, a real kind of glue in a place like an old jail where you bring in kind of old histories but also education and then you brought our kind of archiving and um, exhibition or display type work. Um, so my background before my PhD was also in community development. I also did my um, master's here at ANU in applied anthropology. Um, and strangely, those um, skills are just so, so helpful in the jail. So a typical day at the jail is very unpredictable because it's a museum now. We get lots of ex-prisoners and ex-guards that come in as tourists. Um, I always think it must be so bizarre for them to be able to walk around eating an ice cream, looking at this space where they once did time. It's very emotional for some people. Um, and so, yeah, the day is often managing some of those um, tensions or complexities of having people um, wandering around the space that have a totally different relationship with it than other people who are just there as tourists. And I think for the people who work there, it's really striking that balance and really trying to understand the kind of layers of complexity of such an old space that has some very dark history. Um, and it's about finding ways to um, really represent and interpret that um, in with keeping the complexities alive. And so I've, part of my job that I've kind of taken on for myself is to really encourage people to um, yeah, take on that challenge rather than make it just a tourist site that is all about the paranormal activity that um, does actually happen there. <laughs> Okay, so we'll continue with uh, our second um, session, <coughs> which is your current work, which you already um, talked about, but um, more specifically, what is it about your work that makes it applied? And I think you also, and then in what ways do you apply the knowledge and skills of anthropology in your current work? And what specific elements of anthropology are most useful um, in your work? Okay. Um, I think having come to this postdoctoral research position from an NGO sort of advocacy driven um, career made a world of difference for me in terms of actually continuing to see the critical relevance of anthropology as a discipline beyond academia. Um, so without wanting to go into advice just yet, but I think it is possibly one advice I'd give is to not necessarily rush into the PhD or rush into a postdoc, but to take a bit of space in between those, um, you know, stages to get some of that real world experience, which can make a world of difference in terms of figuring out what your next step can be and where your passion lies and what your heart as much as your mind drives you. So that's more of an advice. Um, I suppose for me, um, given that so much of the applied side of my work is about negotiating futures, human, non-human futures, landscape futures across corporate, state and indigenous actors, um, you know, this this self-reflexive 
constant questioning or acknowledgement of our positionality as anthropologists makes it makes a really big difference. And, and that's something that I try to bring out in my conversations with the hard scientists, um, but also with indigenous communities that I work with, right? So to try to see how their way of seeing and inhabiting the world differs and may come into friction with the way state and corporate actors do and try to find try to move beyond incommensurability in these ways of being in and inhabiting the world to identify areas of potential, um, you know, zones where a mutual understanding can flourish, um, while also acknowledging the limits to those kinds of intercultural conversations. Um, so I suppose that critical reflexivity and positionality would be one of the really key tools. Um, Cultural relativism as well, of course, you know, one of the basic tools in our toolbox and as anthropologists, trying to see the world from the corporate perspective, from the perspective of the CSR folks that I'm trying to have conversations with, um, trying to understand what things like sustainable sustainable palm oil, the main sector that I've been working with, what does that look like? What does that feel like? What what does it entail? Um, really trying to, to adopt the other's positionality is really, really important and to have those conversations with the communities that I'm working with as well. And it can be really tricky and there are sensitivities at play, um, but I think it's a really important um, tool, I would say. Um, I think for me, um, positionality and, you know, understanding my own sort of cultural lens and and what I, I bring to the role, you know, my experiences, my ethnicity, my education and and that sort of background, understanding that on a daily basis, I think is is really important um, for the work that I do. And you know, there is always an underlying sort of power dynamic in that. You know, I'm I'm writing up these cultural heritage reports. You know, on a monthly basis, I'm working with extractive industries, and I'm largely in a position where, although I'm consulting with traditional owners on a daily <coughs> basis. There is, you know, an element of power to actually, uh, you know, putting your name on a document that says this is a cultural heritage report of the Western leases. And I think just, you know, rem remembering that, you know, there's there's real human lives behind these reports. And, you know, in, in my sort of context, we've got a big um, manganese mine on Rhode Island um, where I was working. So, you know, the... Um, you know, on, uh, maybe I would bring together like four different clan groups um, for a particular meeting and uh, to discuss whether the mine could um, uh, perhaps drill around a certain billabong. Um, and, you know, just in that act of determining, you know, who has who has an interest in that group is, is so incredibly political. Um, so I guess creating a space where you know, it's not my knowledge that I'm bringing forth, but I'm, you know, in a position, I guess, to facilitate um, different voices coming together and different perspectives is really important. And unfortunately, you know, just in, in the way um, the Land Council is set up, you know, I'm sort of the author of a lot of these reports, but, you know, but so much of it is just in the methodology of, of bringing together um you know, lots of traditional owner voices and ensuring that you're in a position where you're um, in a facilit facilitatory kind of role um, and not trying to, you know, uh, put your opinion out there and, um, yeah, working closely with um, different people and, and being empathetic and I think just, yeah, being reflecting on, and, uh, on what you know and what you don't know and I think that's really important as well and understanding that you're going to have lots of gaps in your knowledge. Um, and so, yeah, being open-minded and, and bringing, um, bringing people together into a room and, and understanding, 
you know, the sort of underlying power structures, I think, is really important for me in my work as a, as a land council anthropologist. Thanks. I'll try to be um, uh, complimentary and add some things on. Um, listening, like, there, not every academic discipline is, is, in a sense, training to be a professional listener. There are others, but um, that, I think, is absolutely critical. And, and listening in a way that you, you are hearing what is said as opposed to what, what other people may think has been said. And that requires the context for that conversation, what people can and can't say, all of those things that we understand about the complexities of social interaction. Second one would be adaptability. I almost never plan about four, more than four weeks in advance, which for my organisation is just bizarre because it's full of all these people running these structured multi-year database systems and major scientific experiments. But I just find in the, with the work that I do and the people that I do it with, that you don't, well, you might plan four weeks you might plan something eight weeks ahead, but you just assume that it's not going to end up being in that form at that time, at that place. Something else is going to happen and you'll end up doing something else. And being comfortable with that, just going, right, okay, I thought I was flying to the remote Pilbara this week and instead I'm going to North Queensland and doing something completely different. And being able to live with that, being comfortable with that. Um, now, obviously, that has all sorts of ramifications for the rest of your life. But that's... Um, <laughs> If they just know you're going away, they don't know that where you've gone has suddenly changed dramatically. It doesn't really matter to them. Um, and then the third one, um, which is specific to Aboriginal Australia in a sense, the work that I do, is blowing through a place and knowing all the stuff that you don't have because you've had the luxury of spending 18 months with a small group of people at one point in your career. There are people who feel like they've got a lot because that's all they've ever done is a few days in a place. and. I think the privilege and the luxury of the of some of the, the deeper periods of time, and of course, even that's transient compared to a local, like 18 months is no time at all in the context of a lifetime. But giving you um, the ability to understand, the ability to get more than you might have got because you've had that depth of experience, but also to be completely aware of how shallow it is what you've got because you've only been there for a few days and you have to just extrapolate all of the depth and complexity that might exist underlying what you have. I was hoping to add something and you've said all of the notes that <laughs> I would go to, so maybe I'll just reinforce it with, with a few examples. Um, and I wanted to start also with listening. To me, that there's the number one skill, and to me, the number one skill that I see that many other disciplines lack um, out of either they don't have to do it or they're not trained in doing it or they can just jolly well get on with what they're doing and, and they don't have to listen and we I would say that they're poor for it however they can certainly in my area in agriculture um, those biophysical scientists will continue to get funded whether or not they're working with social scientists I have to make the case constantly for why they should be also be working with social scientists and listening to them but the reality is that they will continue to get funded and their research will continue, will be the same in the medical space and I think a lot of the areas where we, where we work. Um, so it, it really is incumbent then upon the anthropologist to be the one that listens and looks for the ways to build the bridge to working with those other scientists or with those bureaucrats or with those NGO workers. Um, and, and we do have the skill set. Uh, to do that, I believe that's extremely important. The reflexivity angle I, I find invaluable for, 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 for so many reasons, um, both 
uh, on my own, all, all the things that you've discussed about yourself as the individual, but also then reflecting on all the partners I work with in, in different countries. Um, in my portfolio, I work from Myanmar through to Fiji and, and a lot of the countries in between. So while I can't do a deep dive on each and every country, I know where I can look at stuff really kind of quickly and get a bit of a sense of it, but also be very aware of what I don't know. Um, that's a, that's a really key skill, which I don't know how you write that into a CV, but somehow we've got to find ways of writing that up because it's incredibly um, valuable. But also reflecting on the position of the people that I'm speaking to. So, you know, for example, understanding that when I'm in uh, Myanmar, I'm not going to have a, a discussion around politically sensitive uh, matters there with the, with the people there. And if we're talking about a particular geography of the country, there's, there's questions I'm not going to be asking that person because I know that they can't give me um, any sort of answer um, that would advance the discussion. So even in the more diplomatic areas as well, I think it's incredibly useful to have that, that reflexivity that you can deploy in yourself and, and an understanding of, of the situation. The other area is, is um, power. And it's a wonderful um, tool to be able to think in different registers. So I alluded earlier to the work that I've been doing around gender equity. Can't talk about gender equity in some countries. It's just not acceptable or you have to be aware of there's different things going on within the country. So you can change register and talk about power. And so that's just one example of where, and there's lots of other tools we have in our kit, but the power is the very, very obvious one and I use it um, all of the time. Also to talk to uh, biophysical scientists about understanding the hegemony of their Western way of thinking and how just because you're breeding uh, things in a lab doesn't mean it doesn't have, say, gendered implications for when it goes um, out to the field. There is an element of street cred as well. I'm the social scientist. I'm the one that hasn't done anything agricultural in terms of my studies in my cohort of scientists that I work with. However, I'm the only one that has lived with subsistence farmers uh, overseas for more than a year. So I get farming in a way that they never can. Um, and my little catchphrase is always farming is done by people and, and for people and nobody gets that quite like the anthropologist does. I'm conscious of, that we're being recorded, so I'll just very briefly describe this picture. Uh, so that's myself in the headquarters of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, Yasser Arafat, who some of you may remember this picture on the wall. The man on the, on the right is the Minister of Education and his two senior secretaries and another colleague in charge of curriculum reform, myself as the um, UN diplomat responsible to the Palestinian Authority. Um, I wanted to take the point that we were talking about um, listening, anthropologist skills about listening. The con converse side of that is you need to talk as well, and talking in often very difficult uh, situations. This particular situation is where we're working across the entire UN system to try and help to introduce um, grade zero, as they call it internationally, Virginie, I've just recognised you, off. Um, old friend. Uh, grade zero or kindergarten, um, and how to negotiate in the, amongst UN agencies, which is exceptionally complex. Uh, they all have their own agendas and their own favourite uh, mandates, mandate creep, all that kind of um, business. But also looking at the issue that uh, you're trying to introduce something which is not culturally understood, is not seen as something that's very important. Uh, it's seen as very difficult given um, gender roles within the society. And also you're trying to implement something uh, because my office, I had an office both in Gaza 
where I was I had to deal with Hamas and I had to deal with uh, the PLO in the, the West Bank trying to introduce two completely different schooling systems with two groups of people who didn't speak to one another um, all underneath the chapeau of the, the state of Israel controlling to a large extent what the education system looked like what they would accept what they wouldn't accept so these um, kinds of conversations are very difficult. Um, I could have shown another picture where I was advocating to open a UN office in Myanmar post-Cyclone Nagas, one of the great environmental tragedies of our time, uh, where, of course, I was supposed to be speaking to the Minister of Education. I'll try and make this light. But, of course, the people who held the keys to working in that country was the uh, ruling military junta. So. I would have meetings with the Minister of Education, but he would be at the end of the room with the door open, so they would actually physically go up to see him. And I would be sitting with uh, six generals inside, talking about the kinds of access and stuff that we needed to do in terms of uh, <coughs> helping children get back into school. Uh, so yes, there are anthropological skills that you will continue to use in your career. Um, they might not be readily accessible. It might not be something that you learn about or or study but I think that's a, a challenge for anthropologists one takeaway I would give is that you are learning incredible skills now but you generally if you're doing your masters or PhD very much focused on one very specific issue I think as you develop your career skills and as you move on through life you need to sort of see that as a kind of a ripple in a pond and what other things can you add to that uh, regard uh, whether whether that's skills in uh, negotiation, skills in leadership, skills in uh, transformative uh, business processes, skills in evaluation. If you can add those kinds of elements and be aware of those as you go along. Yes, <laughs> all of that. Um, yeah, obviously uh, communication and flexibility, I think are two of the greatest, most natural skills that anthropologists seem to possess. I also think we're really, really good at multitasking. And even within a PhD, it's such a um, the kind of ultimate project of multitasking. One of the best analogies I heard when I first started my PhD was that you're doing a PhD is like running a small business because you have a budget, you have your um, scholarship that you have to work within, you've got timeframes to work within, you've got people that you have to manage. Um, often there's dynamics between your supervisors that you have to manage. Um, there's all these kind of qualities that very much mirror what it's like to run a small business. Um, and I thought that was such a helpful analogy for me when I started. And I think it also has helped me since really zoom out to look much more at the kind of um, the way that you can stretch those core anthropological skills to being very meaningful in every workplace that you go into. And having recently just gone into a workplace that is not anthropological, it's also not academic. Um, the way that I've been able to look at the problem that was there before me at the jail, which was that the job I set out to do was no longer there for me to do. Um, and it was just the fact that I could then very quickly see what else needed doing and just go about and start doing it. And I think that that comes from um, be, being practised in the field where it's just you and it's up to you to make your projects move and generate um, and I think those are skills that are really super valuable that we probably don't exactly recognise about ourselves. Um, but it's only once you have that contrast of being in workplaces with people that are much more rigid, 
um, and much more um, not in my job description kind of way of thinking that you realise that we, like we do, there's a dynamism to anthropologists that's um, really precious. Um, so the questions are um, how you have experienced your transition from being a student uh, of anthropology into uh, the professional sphere and how, uh, how, how it was for you to become this professional anthropologist and um, well like I said how you got to where you are today and especially the first steps after graduation. And some of you have already talked about that, of course. So, um, and to what do you attribute your attribute your successes and um, the challenges and how you overcame overcame challenges and have overcome. Um, and then also what non-anthropological skills and Darius also has already talked a bit about that um, you gained as you went along and you had to develop as part of your career and why and um and the last question is have, how have you if you have engaged with academia and um if so why or why not um so well i'm sort of very much just in this process of moving out of um, phd land into back into the real world um i mean my kind of advice my journey there was taking this opportunity of an internship and i the internship, the pay of the internship is not more than the scholarship, but I didn't treat it like anything less than a real pay, paying job because I could immediately see that that was leverage back into the real world and potentially leverage to even lobby the state government to get more or to actually create a position for an anthropologist in the government. Um, so, you know, I, I think taking those opportunities, like seeing them and just jumping on them and taking them seriously is um, something that has definitely worked for me in that mood. Um, yeah, yeah um, the, the transition is good. It's, it's a good thing to have something to do straight away because I think if you don't have something to do straight away, you risk the trap of just falling into a kind of post-PhD lull or um, like fear that you can't actually get anything or do anything else and be a student. So. Um, on that, it's worth volunteering if you can't find an internship or a postdoc. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in all of the places I've worked, um, and I imagine across all applied anthropology, is how much contact you have with volunteers. And so being a volunteer yourself or um, getting into anything that engages with volunteers or learning how to manage volunteers, I think can be a really, really helpful thing because it builds your own CV. But also, um, ultimately, once you're working as an applied anthropologist, um, you come in contact with volunteers all the time, particularly where I am at the moment in the kind of museum space. Lots of museums have these huge uh, banks of volunteers that, that really run the show behind the scenes. A lot of people have asked me during the course of my life how I got into the UN. They thought it was be a difficult place. Um, I got into the UN by being a volunteer and by being in a place where things were difficult and not many people were around to work. They wanted security. They wanted to get paid a lot of money. They had a lot of uh, different... Uh, uh, ex they had high expectations, basically. And I think sometimes that... Uh, I don't think this is something that you prove your engagement with something, but I think if you're really committed to something, 
uh, I think, again, it's always building these other networks. You may not think that joining group X or Y would be, you know, tactically to your advantage. And I don't mean to, to sound like that Machiavellian in that sense, but, but simply to say that these things offer, uh, open opportunities for you to meet other people who are connected in very different ways. And I think sometimes that's what you really need. I wanted to, Alex, if I could just show, it's like show and tell. Um, I have another picture here. Uh, this is um, after the Palestine was um, admitted as a member state to, to UNESCO. Um, <clears throat> that's Benjamin Netanyahu. This is a cartoon, obviously. Uh, <laughs> Uh, instructing his pilots that on their way back from bombing Iran that they would blow up my office. And, and I had at that time about 40 staff and uh, I was quite um, appalled by this uh, and particularly the psychological effect that it had uh, on my colleagues. What I wanted to say and the point about this is that uh, there will be um, things that are complex in, in life and I think that that's where anthropology really prepared me to have... Uh, a complex situation which you might not be able to solve with a process or by filling in a particular form and so on. But sometimes people's expectations of, of who you are, how you can lead others, uh, might be something that is really important for your work and, and that could be working in an NGO or uh, an, an, any other environment. You can take the picture down and illustrate the point. Thanks very much. Uh, so I think that, you know, often I feel that I've lived my life in reverse in the sense that I did lots of anthropology early and now I hardly do any at all. But I would say and I would emphasize that anthropology uh, allowed me to get to where I, I am. It's intellectual, the gifts that it's given me in terms of being able to reflect on who I am, what's happening to other people and to help them through difficult circumstances. Nothing could have prepared me like anthropology did for that, though the problem, you know, turning your life around late midlife, as in my case, coming back to Australia and trying to explain those skills and experience I had, is not such an easy thing. But that that's fine. But you you learn uh, to understand and, and to and to leverage those things that, that really made you and your career what they are. And I think that um, and to, for that, I mean, anthropology was invaluable. Uh, maybe other people don't understand it like that, but I think. If you, if you think about what you've learned in anthropology as stakeholder engagement, if you think about it and you lift it up to these other kinds of terms, it become, it allows you to be able to articulate yourself and what you really, you know, are enthused and passionate about. Um, before I carry on, you're all being very quiet and attentive. Yes. Um, and I know it's after lunch, but I want to find out a little bit about the people in the room. So can I have a show of hands of who's actually thought about what they're going to do after they finish their, their PhDs or Masters in, in the room? Such a mob of anthropologists. <laughs> One of the things that we don't do well, I've got to say, is train uh, ourselves and others in our discipline to, to speak out and be publicly engaged. I would encourage you to get better than that. So we've got half the room tentatively thinking about how they're going to buy the groceries after they finish their PhD. <laughs> yeah, okay. So of those that have put their hand up, do you see yourself going into government? Yeah, nothing else comes up. I'll do my best for all of you. In NGOs? On government organisations? A bit more of a clarity of purpose around that. And I'm sitting down and I'm very short too. Okay. <laughs> University? Yeah. 
Brave, brave people. <laughs> private sector? Anyone considering the private sector? And you can have multiple options. You can, you're allowed to think about anything. Has anyone got a clear, a really crystal clear sense of where they're going after their PhD? Sorry, what was that? Do you have a, Do you have a crystal clear sense of where you're going after your PhD or your masters? It's impossible in the current Pretty uncertain future, isn't it? Yeah. Um, oh, okay, uh, I've got a few things to say, so I'll just jump back. I've thought of two more things that you've got um, that you may not recognise that you have that I think are really important. Uh, anthropologists learn to see the general in the particular, and nobody else can do that. And that gobsmacked me after having my head in that space for so long that when I got outside the institution, that others weren't trained and, and, and couldn't do that. So always think about how you can parlay that into something useful, because I think we do that. Um, extremely well. Um, and the second aspect, I haven't had a second coffee after lunch, so I'm failing myself here, what was it? Something else really important. Um, oh, you can be a lone wolf, and I hear this a lot as a criticism of anthropology, but it's actually an incredible skill because you, like no one else, can sit alone in a room and stare at the walls and think independently. Not to say other disciplines can't do that, but most people here will have spent a period of, of fieldwork completely removed from their intellectual environment. And so you do have those skills to do that. I hope that's not at the expense of being able to collaborate. That's also equally important. But not everybody will have had that skill of being able to constantly be focused and work uh, independently and by themselves. Um, that's extremely valuable. Questions we were talking about? Journey. Oh, journey. Okay. Um, I've been all over the place. I came to university as a mature age student. I left school. I didn't finish high school. I did an apprenticeship as a chef. And then I've worked all over the place. I, I found out there was this thing called anthropology after travelling and went, oh, my God, I can get paid to do that and to study language. I'm in, I'm in heaven. And so I was that revolting mature age student that was down the front as an undergraduate studying everything and turning around telling people to be quiet because I was already paying for it. Everyone was paying for it now, but I was paying for it um, at, at that time. Um, <laughs> I, I went and did honours on marine tenure and resource management because I was absolutely fascinated about that in eastern Indonesia. And then I went and worked in East Timor. I managed a project for care. This was in between the Indonesians uh, pulling out and when East Timor became a country. So I very quickly deployed a lot of the skills I'd already uh, learned. So I very much got into that applied space. It's always... I then came back and came to ANU and did my PhD and within a few months it broke my little heart to see how there was this huge distinction between academic and applied anthropology and I believe there is a meeting going on this week about how we start to get more of a public voice and elevate the status of applied anthropology because I think it's extraordinarily important and uh, we, we could do a lot more in that space. We need the academic as well but I don't think that the applied is the, the poor cousin of, of the academic. So I've then oscillated since then um, between the two and I sort of hedged my bets a little bit. But with my current role at ACR, it was my big step from saying, I'm not going to be out in the field doing the research anymore. It's around management. And a little bit like Derek was alluding to, I think all of those skill sets that we discussed in the last round, 
I now bring to the um, analytical and strategic thinking that I do and I bring uh, to some of the work that I do and I've actually got a bit of show and tell here myself. I bought the ACI 10 year strategy which I worked on heavily and also the uh, ACI gender policy and strategy which I instigated. So you're able to bring all those skills together to then you know, have, have quite an influence um, in this instance on how we spend um, the Australian aid budget. Thanks. Um, I'll probably just go to a couple of points in the journey for me personally and hope to bring them out to the more general. So um, I hit the discipline late at a postgraduate level and um, one of the most important things at that point for someone who had a set of skills but was coming from outside was to, to make friends and make relationships inside the discipline and now that sometimes needs to be virtual depending on how you're studying but actually the peer-to-peer -peer support was really important um, in terms of um, feeling like both I was learning something outside of reading things, but also um, creating relationships that sustain you down the track. Um, the second thing was at the other end of my PhD, um, I thought I had a postdoc lined up and it was pulled the day before my graduation. So um, in dubious circumstances, so I had this period where, and um, my field work was reasonably intense. It was 18 months in a tent in the tropics and I, had a, I needed to have a knee reconstruction during the process and did the relationship breakdown. You know, you can tick all the boxes, right? <laughs> so you get to the end and then someone pulls the rug out of what you think is coming next. And um, so, yeah, I had about four weeks of being in the doldrums back at home um, and at mum and dad's place. So you're 30 odd and you're living at mum and dad's and you don't have a job, right? So all of this is like, it's not a sob story. And the, and the reason for that is that um, I then got a call and, and found myself in a teaching job three weeks later because someone really liked my thesis. Now that doesn't mean that the thesis is the be all and end all, but what it means is that There'll be something you're doing potentially that may not be the main thing you're doing, but it will. It, someone will notice that and they will respond to it. And so if you're doing what you, you're passionate about and you're doing it well and you kind of trust to the gods a little bit, it doesn't always work. I'm not going to say it does, but it can work. And, and actually, in hindsight, that teaching job taught me the anthropology I should have known that didn't. Um, Admittedly, I was taking the classes, uh, teaching the classes, not taking them, but that was another story. Um, but the second thing was that I don't think I would have been mentally um, good enough to do that postdoc straight away. I think I was too burned out and actually the structure of that teaching role, although it delayed my publication record and that's had implications down the track, that having, having an external person rather than still needing to sit in a room and self-generate actually turned out to be really important. So I thought I had a plan and the plan got pulled, but the one that was then occurred probably in hindsight with a sort of 10 year perspective actually turned out to be better than what I thought I needed. So um, that's just moments in time, but um, being patient with it. And it's not an easy environment at the moment. Um, it wasn't, we all need to be aware of that and that there are the opportunities are more constrained, but also the adaptability is important. And, and the willingness to think about how to talk about your skill sets in ways that, that um, connect to people beyond the academy can be really beneficial. But sometimes that side thing you're doing will actually turn out to be really fundamental to your future in ways you don't expect. Thanks. Um, I suppose I've had a slightly different journey and a different relationship with academia. Um, when I came to Australia, it was three weeks after I had finished my undergrad in anthropology and I arrived $100,000 in debt. <laughs> um, 
from studying in the U.S. So I didn't really have the luxury of exploring a PhD program or any sort of postgrad for a few years. So really, my priority was finding employment. Um, and I, you know, I, I wanted to become an anthropologist, but I was 22, so I didn't really know what that meant, what that looked like. So I think you know that sort of worked to my advantage because I was desperate enough. I needed to make money that I was willing to apply for lots of different jobs and look in areas that I wouldn't necessarily perhaps have looked um, looked into. So that sort of led me to this job in the desert. Um, and at the time, it, you know, it was in youth development, community development, which wasn't necessarily an area that I had studied. But, you know, it was just interesting enough, um, and I was young enough to, um, to, to consider it. And I think for me, a, a guiding sort of quotation I've had in my mind, it was, it was um, written by an Australian author named Robin Davidson, and she said, that adventure is just hardship with an inflated sense of self. Um, that has totally applied to everything I've done. Um, I've sort of gone into a lot of opportunities thinking, well, this sounds like an adventure. Um, and with, I think with the skills that you sort of develop as an anthropologist, with that flexibility, with that empathy, with that ability to form relationships, you really are in a position to, um, to, to meet lots of new people and have lots of really interesting experiences. And I think, um, you know, that's largely guided where I've ended up. Um, and the fact that I got an anthropologist position after, you know, I guess it was four years of working in the community development space, I, you know, I wasn't sure if I would ever become an anthropologist, and I'm still very early in my career, but, you know, I'm, I'm quite grateful to have had lots of different interesting relationships and experiences out on country that made me realize, hey, I can do this. Like, I studied this stuff, and even though I'm young and I, don't, I haven't fully cultivated my skill set, this is something that's totally attainable. Um, and I think, yeah, continuing to be open-minded and, you know, learning from learning from so many different um, people about their journey um, is certainly encouraging. And I think keeping in mind that um, it won't always be easy. And I think, in fact, it's those opportunities when, you know, you really feel the most uncomfortable and most fragile and vulnerable. Um, but yeah, th it's those opportunities when you really grow. And so um, keep at it. And I haven't done a PhD. And for me, I was chatting with a few people. It's something that I have my my sights set on, but it's more of a 20-year goal for myself. I'm working in the field, I'm enjoying being an applied anthro, and I have, a, you know, engaged in a lot of community development projects, and when the right one comes along and the moment is right, I'll pursue it, but for now I'm really quite content with my sort of trajectory and wh wherever that should take me, so thank you. <coughs> It's really fascinating listening to all of this, and it's just reminded me of, I suppose, another thing that my work has taught me is how much we take for granted about what about what our skills are as anthropologists, and we're not taught them in a formal sort of way, um, and engaging with non-academic audiences is one of the best ways to realize, wow, okay, this is these are the skills I have, so following up from what you were saying earlier, um, I think... Doing a plan anthropology makes you realize how much you know beyond what you think you know. Um, I think anthropology is probably one of the most interdisciplinary disciplines from the outset. Um, we study things from environment to kinship to biology to language. Um, I think our refusal to homogenize, to universalize, to reduce as a result of that is an essential skill as well. Um, and I think the humility 
that it, that is the praxis of ethnography, which is an art of you know cultivating an art of attentiveness and of empathy. I think, um, or all these things that we might take for granted um, a lot of the time. Uh, so the journey. Uh, so I submitted my thesis in August last year. Um, got the results back in December. Um, by then, I'd applied for twenty five postdocs and positions all around the world. I didn't get any of them. Most of them were one year, nine months, six month gigs halfway around the world. I would strongly not recommend doing that. Um, I know how difficult it can seem to feel like you can be picky, but choosing, you know, applying for these jobs is often a full-time job. So I think one of my biggest advice was apply for it if you really think you want to go there, take into account your personal circumstances, how mobile you are. Um, yeah, it, it can seem like you can't afford to be picky, but ultimately, do you really want to move halfway around the world for a six-month postdoc? where you won't really have time to settle in and you're going to start applying the minute you get there, basically. So, um, yeah, that's certainly one of the lessons I learned. In the end, I applied for this postdoc. I didn't think I would get it. The job description certainly wasn't one that I was qualified to go for. They were looking for a medical anthropologist with a background in biomedicine, which I didn't have. Um, second piece of advice, sometimes job descriptions can be aspirational rather than dictatorial. So, you know, go, go talk to the people in the department, get a sense of network, you know, go and meet these people. First of all, it'll give you a sense of whether you want to work with them, even if you get the job, right? Um, and yeah, just to know that sometimes job descriptions cannot be as you know, rigid as they might seem. And your skills in the interview, the, the way you're able to talk about how what you can bring as an anthropologist can make a world of difference, and uh, you as a person, rather than you know, jobs can be made around a person rather than the other way around. So that's another piece of advice. Um, I had no idea what a postdoc was when I started. I was like, is this just a second PhD? Do you want a PhD thesis at the end of the three years? Um, it's been a wonderful experience in the sense that I've been able to continue the applied work, but also I've actually finally got to share the stories and the experiences and the indigenous worlds that I've been, you know, squirreling at, writing away on my own for the past three and a half years. And that's been just fantastic to be able to tell those stories, to present um, and, and to share that knowledge. Um, biggest challenge, learning to say no. <laughs> Um, once you start putting your work out there, you often get approached um, to join projects, to give talks, and at some point you actually have to learn to say no, and that's a difficult thing to do because we generally are passionate about our work. Um, when you're in a postdoc, it's, a not, it's not a permanent position, so I'll be looking for work in two and a half years, so it can feel difficult to, to, to actually say, well, actually, no, I, I don't have the mind space or the time to do that, but it's really essential if you want to retain some sort of sanity, um, and I think that applies as well to the PhD you know, um, experience. Um, what did I do? What, what, what did I think helped me on this journey to get here? I think it was the fact that in addition to trying to publish academically during the PhD, I was also doing a hell of a lot of non-traditional research outputs. So, you know, pieces in the conversation, um, media engagement, non-academic blogs, essays and all of that. Those things don't count as metrics. But they do show that you are someone who is trying to have an impact and to engage beyond the scholarly community. And I know that make a, they made a really big difference in terms of getting me this postdoc. So I'd encourage you to keep doing that, even if it doesn't count per se, you know, as scholarly publications. Um, and I think I'll start there. Very briefly, the last question really was, um, and you've already given a lot of advice, but is there something you haven't said yet? Like the one thing that you would want to give postgrads or undergrads of anthropology like what they what we should really be doing i um i have a statistic and um just as a slight footnote i can't remember where i heard it and i don't know if this is exactly accurate but it was something like six percent of postgraduate students actually get substantive academic positions at the end of um 
in higher education. So but that's why we focused and are focused on applied anthropology yeah, this yeah. year. I mean, the truth is it's just a reality. The reality is that most people won't actually work in academia. Most will be applied in some way. And whether it's applied as a traditional applied anthropologist or with the title of applied anthropologist, or whether it's kind of getting on seek and looking for those job descriptions and seeing how you can kind of mould them um, or extend them or... Um, that's that's the truth, I guess. Yeah. So I wouldn't be afraid about um, the idea that you should go from a PhD into a postdoc or into academia, because most likely that won't happen for most of us. Twenty years ago, I sat here at the ANU with um, my other PhD colleagues, and we we're talking about what how to get into the world of work and what we do. And one of them was giving an example. Well, if you get a bunch of young lawyers together, they're all very driven and focused about what they're going to do with their careers, etc., etc. And when we all sit together as anthropologists, what do we do? And I said, well, we form a circle. And now here, it's a joke, 20 years later, <laughs> half a circle. <laughs> I don't know that's progress. <laughs> could be good, could be bad. <laughs> We're open. <laughs> Um, well, I didn't come from an academic background, and uh, the one thing I wish someone had told me um, before the end of my PhD is that there is no end to your PhD. It's sort of this series of sort of sliding away from the academy as you go through submitting drafts and maybe a final draft to your supervisory panel and having run out of money and possibly in debt you're out looking for uh, other work and while you're still trying to do research. So there's sort of, there's this, that, that's your sort of first milestone and then when you finally submit it, it's a bit of a milestone, but then you wait for the, you know, the letter to come back about the, you know, where you're up to. So it's this sort of slow slide out. So there, there is no one definitive, you don't sort of like put a line under it and go, yes, I finished my PhD now really until you have your graduation. Um, ceremony. So um, I wish someone had told me that and a lot, Marcus, whether it's enforced or not, take four weeks and sit on the couch and eat chips because <laughs> you really deserve to do that. It honestly is the hardest thing you'll ever do. I just, I, I, I've always been very driven but even for me it was extremely taxing doing the PhD because I couldn't clean behind the oven. I always was just working on the thesis and when all of a sudden that's gone, I know it affected some people quite negatively. For me, I just do little mental dances even now so many years later. But I don't have that thing always there. I can effectively switch off. It's incredibly taxing. You in the state that you're in now wouldn't be able to realise that until you're out the other side. Um, but once you're out the other side, it's a, a pure pleasure to know that, you, that you, you've done it. And that's why there is this recognition when you see someone else that has done a PhD. You go, oh, gosh, yes, it was like that. And why it's so cruel when you ask someone when are you finishing your PhD. You completely understand why it's so much. We are going around, so I'll just make a simple observation that it's probably no accident. I'm only know the biographies of a couple of us, but both of us worked on ARC linkage projects. So we both worked on um, PhD projects where there was an explicit industry partner who had a set of interests in the work and had a set of agendas with respect to the work. So um, there was the academic applied distinction has never existed for me um, in either my honours or my PhD and. So I don't experience my world of work as any kind of compromise that some days I'm writing an academic article, less so at the moment, some of the reasons that Derek talked about. But that, yeah, and, and thinking about your work in those terms while you're doing your PhD, whether it's structured into the project or not, can be quite beneficial. Like thinking about 
who this matters for and why it matters to them and even maybe talking to them about that in advance of completing it. And you know, that may be a research engagement, but it might also be beyond the actual focus of the research. I would say widen your search and just be prepared to look big and small. And so much of, I think, my sort of career has just been built on um, cultivating relationships, meeting people, and then seeing if I can, you know, get something out of that relationship. That sounds kind of manipulative, but, you know, we're anthropologists. We can, <laughs> we can empathize with individuals and, and, you know, we understand how these networks work. Um, and I think, you know, uh, using lots of different job platforms, ethical jobs, I've had a lot of success using NRM jobs also, you know, in an Australian context, the Australian Volunteers um, Network is also, also has some great opportunities to expand your search and don't, um, you know, don't shy away from having conversations, even, even when you don't think you necessarily have the skills so much of so much of it is, is I think, personality related and, you know, ensuring that you're the right fit within a team. And I think all the skill sets that we've spoken about today, I think, um, definitely set you guys apart, um, you know, to, to be in a good position to get a lot of jobs, even if you might not necessarily be the right fit on paper. Um, I just want to echo what you were saying, Jane, that, you know, those of you who are doing a PhD or finishing up should be very, very, very proud of yourselves because it is one of the most arduous rites of passage, and it's only those who've been through it who who know how difficult it is. I mean, it's a privilege as well to be able to spend three and a half years reading what you want, writing what you want, thinking what you want. You know, if you'll look at an often exhilarating experience in hindsight, if not at the time, um, but, it, but it's a tough ride. So just, yeah, look back as much as looking forward and as, at what you have achieved. Um, I'm gonna speak it as someone who's in academia and doing the applied work on top of that. Um, one thing I wanna say is that, um, one thing to be prepared for is that that's not necessarily always well seen within academia. So for a very long time, when I was doing this applied work, um, I felt this need to constantly justify why I was also doing applied work on top of the academic work. Because in fact, it's not always, you know, that some scholars question your objectivity, your, you know, that sort of thing. So, and I've now learned to embrace that positionality, to problematize it as well, but just be prepared for the fact that it might not always be seen as something that, um, yeah, is in line with an academic, what a scholar should be doing. Um, and then the other thing I'd say is to have a support network. Um, people around you who are going through the same sort of difficult job search process. Um, and sometimes it can be hard because you might be competing for the same job. You might be applying for the same job. That's tough. Um, you've just seen a postdoc, you can apply for it. You know someone else who's actually probably better placed. Do you send them the link? Do it. <laughs> Do it. Because people remember these things. And my experience has told me that it can make a world of difference years later when you've probably forgotten about it. Um, you might be in different places in your career, but these things do matter. So exercising generosity of self of knowledge, of opportunities, it might seem really counterintuitive when the job market's so tight, whatever job market you're looking at, but um, what goes around comes around, or the other way around. Answer Roundtable discussion on applied anthropology from the AAS 2019 conference. Thanks to Marcus Barber, Sophie Chow, Jane Kernow, Derek Elias, 
Bronwyn Hall and Leslie Pine for participating in the discussion. This special episode was produced through collaboration between The Familiar Strange and ANSWER. If you wanted to keep up with ANSWER, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, head to answer-aas.net. Finally, go check out the Familiar Strange chats group on Facebook to discuss what you found interesting in this panel. Thanks for listening to this very special episode, and until next time, keep talking strange.